a podcast about the overlooked, forgotten, and underground tales of San Francisco. This is Sorted SF. Hello, and welcome back to episode 8 of Sorted SF. Um, I took last week off because I was lazy, and now I'm back, so sorry about that, I guess. Um, I'd like to give a special shout out to Christine, who texted me and was like, when are you putting out another episode? I miss the sound of your voice, and I just thought that was really sweet, so hi, Christine. Here's my voice. Today's episode, we're going to be talking about Roscoe Conkling, Fatty Arbuckle, who um, is a very... I mean, he's dead now, but he, there is some drama. So here we go. Today's episode obviously used Wikipedia as a source, as well as an article from the Smithsonian, um, because the Smithsonian writes about this stuff, I guess. So let's kick it off with the story of Fatty Arbuckle. He was born March 24th, 1887. He was an American silent film actor, comedian, director, and screenwriter. When he was born, he weighed a little over 13 pounds, so his dad automatically was like, nah, this kid ain't mine, I'm thin. So Daddy Arbuckle named him after Senator Roscoe Conkling of New York, a notorious philanderer whom he despised. So yes, you did hear that correctly. His dad named his son after someone the dad hated. Arbuckle's mom, on the other hand, was left with chronic health problems that contributed to her death 11 years later. And, like, the labor was so terrible because he was so huge that it led to suffering for the rest of her life until she died. Up until the death of his mom, Arbuckle performed in local theater and he loved it. But once she passed, his father refused to support him and just kicked him out. So he was on his own at age, like, 12. He got jobs like odd jobs in a hotel where he was in the habit of singing while he worked and a professional singer heard him and invited him to perform in an amateur talent show the show consisted of the audience judging acts by clapping or jeering with the bad acts getting pulled off stage by a shepherd's crook just like you see in those old cartoons like that was real people did that he sang danced and did some clowning around but the crowd thought he was trash And he saw the crook come in from the wings and somersaulted into the orchestra pit in an obvious panic. And this is what ended up selling him to the crowd. The audience lost their shit and Arbuckle ended up winning the talent show. And that kicked off his career in vaudeville. I think that's how you pronounce it. Vaudeville? Vaudeville? Hmm. In 1904, Sid Grauman, who was the showman who built the Chinese theater and Egyptian theater in Hollywood, invited Arbuckle to sing in his new Unique Theater, that was the name of it, uh, Unique Theater, in San Francisco, beginning a long friendship between the two. He then joined the Pantages Theater Group, touring the West Coast, and in 1906, played the Orpheum Theater in Portland, Oregon, um, in a troupe organized by Leon Errol. Arbuckle became the main act, and the group took their show on tour. Um, Then Arbuckle began his film career with the Selig Polyscope Company in July 1909 when he appeared in Ben's Kid. That's the name of the movie, Ben's Kid. He appeared sporadically in Selig one-reelers until 1913, moved briefly to Universal Pictures, and became a star in producer-directed 
Mac Sennett's Keystone Cops comedies. Although his large size was part of his comedic appeal and reason for success, Arbuckle was really self-conscious about his weight and refused to use it to get cheap laughs. Like he wouldn't get stuck in a doorway or a chair because he was so fat. He didn't like being called fatty, so when he wasn't shooting his character, fatty, and someone would address him by fatty, he'd say, I have a name, you know, which I find really heartbreaking because that's just... That's sad. He didn't want to be known for being fat, but like he was, and it was his career. I just, ugh, poor guy. Self, talk about self-esteem issues. So let's talk about his movies. His comedies are noted as rollicking and fast pace. Um, many have chase scenes and feature sight gags. Arbuckle is actually the first man to throw a pie in a film, like a pie in someone's face. And that film was made in 1913, and it was called A Noise from the Deep. In 1914, Arbuckle peaks when Paramount Pictures made the then unheard of offer of $1,000 a day plus 25% of all profits and completed artistic control to make movies with Arbuckle and Normand. And Mabel Normand was Arbuckle's collaborator and they frequently made films together. So the movies were so lucrative and popular that in 1918, they offered Arbuckle a three-year, $3 million contract, and that is equivalent to $54 million in 2021. So that's like, that's serious money. That being said, in 1916, Arbuckle was experiencing serious health problems. An infection that developed on his leg became a carbuncle so severe that doctors considered amputation. Although Arbuckle was able to keep his leg, he was prescribed morphine against the pain. He would later be accused of being addicted to it. Following his recovery, Arbuckle started his own film company, Communique, in partnership with Joseph Schenick? Schenick? Something like that. Although Communique produced some of the best short pictures of the silent era, Arbuckle transferred his controlling interest into the company of Buster Keaton in 1918, and that's when he accepted that crazy $3 million offer to make 18 feature films over a three-year period with Paramount. And thus begins the drama. Labor Day weekend, 1921, Arbuckle was at a celebration bash at the St. Francis Hotel here in San Francisco. The days leading up to the party did not put him in the best mood. He was in L.A. having his car serviced when he sat down on an acid-soaked rag at the garage. The acid burned through his pants, burned his butt, and it caused second-degree burns. He was tempted to cancel the trip to San Francisco, but his friend would have none of it. His friend was named Fishbach. Um, He secured a rubber padding ring for Arbuckle to sit on in the car so they were able to drive up the coast to the St. Francis and I guess the ring made it more comfortable to sit Um, but so Fishbosch Bach had reserved adjoining rooms and a suite according to Arbuckle his friend had arranged everything from the rooms to the guests to the liquor despite the fact that it was prohibition and on Labor Day September 5th 1921 Arbuckle awoke at the St. Francis to find that he had many uninvited guests including Virginia Rappi and Maude Delmont, two 20-something aspiring actress models, you know, L.A. types. 
He was still walking around in his pajamas, bathrobe, and slippers when he saw the two girls and expressed concern that their reputations might alert police to the, quote, gin party. In L.A., Delmont, Maud, was known as a madam and a blackmailer. Virginia had made something of a name of herself as a model, clothing designer, aspiring actress, and party girl. Uh, but then the food and the booze was flowing, music was playing, and Arbuckle was soon no longer focused on, you know, the stress of, like, maybe we're going to get caught, and he just kind of let loose. Next thing you know, Virginia's found seriously ill in room 1219 and was examined by the hotel doctor, who concluded her symptoms were mostly caused by intoxication and gave her morphine to calm her down. Virginia was not hospitalized until two days later. So Virginia died one day after her hospitalization from peronotitis caused by a ruptured bladder. And even though Virginia suffered from chronic UTIs and other bladder issues, uh, which were super exacerbated by alcohol consumption, Maud told the police that she died because Arbuckle had raped her. And the police concluded that the impact of Arbuckle's overweight body lying on top of her had eventually caused her bladder to rupture. At a press conference, Virginia's managers accused Arbuckle of using a piece of ice to stimulate sex with her, thus leading to her injuries. By the time the story was reported in newspapers, the object had evolved into a Coca-Cola like bottle or a champagne bottle rather than a piece of ice. However, witnesses testified that Arbuckle rubbed the ice on Virginia's stomach to ease her abdominal pain. He denied any wrongdoing and... Maud later made a statement incriminating Arbuckle to the police in an, in an attempt to extort money from Arbuckle's attorneys. Maud even claimed that she saw Virginia in Arbuckle's room and heard her say, Arbuckle did it. The Hearst papers had a field day with the story. Obviously, like this is the biggest star of the time. It'd be like if <laughs> I was going to say if Brad Pitt was accused of this, but like wasn't he accused of something really bad um, with Angelina? Um, I'm trying to think who is going to say the president that's happened. All right. Um, who to compare him to? Who's the biggest male star in Hollywood who hasn't already been accused of something like this? So the publisher of the Hearst newspaper would later say that the Fatty Arbuckle scandal stole more papers than the sinking of the Lusitania. Is that how you say that? I'm not sure. It was that big ship. The San Francisco Examiner ran an editorial cartoon titled They Walked Into His Parlor, featuring Arbuckle in the middle of a giant spider web with two liquor bottles at hand and seven women caught in the web. Rumors that he had committed sexual depravities began to swirl. Arbuckle turned himself in and was held for three weeks in jail. Police released a mugshot of the dejected actor photographed in a suit and bow tie, his round face showing nothing of the joy everyone saw when he was on his films. He remained silent as the innuendo swelled. Arbuckle's lawyers insisted he was innocent and requested that the public make no judgment until all the facts were established, but they quickly realized Arbuckle would have to make a statement, and the comedian told a very different story than the one of Maud. His story went, after having a few drinks with Virginia, the actress came, became hysterical. She complained she could not breathe and then started to tear off her clothes. At no time, Arbuckle insisted, was he alone with her, and he said he had witnesses to corroborate the point. He found Virginia in his bathroom, vomiting. He and several other guests tried to revive her from what they believed was intoxication. Eventually, they got her a room of her own where she could recover. 
Arbuckle was charged with manslaughter and scheduled for trial that November. San Francisco DA Matthew Brady saw the case as the perfect opportunity to jumpstart his career in politics, but he was beginning to have trouble with his star witness, Maud. Sometimes she claimed to be a lifelong friend of Virginia's, other times she insisted they had met just a few days before the party, and I'd like us all to remember that she had a legitimate criminal record of extortion, and as her, like, job, she literally procured young women for parties, where wealthy male guests soon found themselves accused of rape and blackmailed into paying her. Then there was the matter of the telegrams that she sent to attorneys in both San Diego and L.A. She literally sent a telegram to people saying, we have Roscoe Arbuckle in a hole here, chance to make some money out of him. Still, the fucking DA of San Francisco wanted to keep charging him and take him to trial. And the fucked up thing is that the newspapers never questioned Maud's version of events, and they just kept hitting Arbuckle. His reputation was in shambles, even after his friends Buster Keaton and Charlie Chaplin vouched for his character. Arbuckle's lawyers introduced medical evidence showing that Virginia had a chronic bladder condition, and her autopsy concluded there were no marks of violence on the body, no signs that the girl had been attacked in any way. The defense also had witnesses with damaging information about Virginia's past, but Arbuckle wouldn't let them testify out of respect for the dead. This poor man... That's crazy. He could have, like, wow. That's really, oh, this poor guy. The doctor who treated Virginia at the hotel testified that she had told him Arbuckle did not try to sexually assault her, but the prosecutor got the point dismissed as hearsay. Arbuckle took the stand on his own defense, and the jurors voted 10 to 2 for acquittal. When the prosecution tried him a second time, because they tried him a second time, the jury deadlocked again. It wasn't until the third trial in March of 1922. Thankfully, I mean, that's pretty fast. First trial was in November, and then they're on the third one by March of the next year. That's good. That's way faster than we have it now. Um, so it wasn't until the third trial, March of 1922, that Arbuckle allowed his attorneys to call the witnesses who had known Virginia to the stand. So finally, he was like, I need to fucking end this. So talk your shit about Virginia. He had little choice at this point, you know. His funds were depleted. He had spent more than $700,000 on his defense already, and his career was presumed dead. So the people who knew Virginia testified that she had suffered previous abdominal attacks, drank heavily, and often disrobed at parties after doing so. She was promiscuous, had an illegitimate daughter, and one of them also attacked Maud as the complaining witness that never witnessed. On April 12, 1922, the jury acquitted Arbuckle of manslaughter after deliberating for just five minutes, four of which were used to prepare a statement. So this is the statement. Acquittal is not enough for Roscoe Arbuckle. We feel that a great injustice has been done to him. There was not the slightest proof abduced to connect him in any way with the commission of a crime. He was manly throughout the case and told a straightforward story which we all believe we wish him success and hope the american people will take the judgment of 14 men and women that roscoe arbuckle is entirely innocent and free from all blame one week later will hayes who the motion picture industry hired as a censor to restore its image banned fatty arbuckle from appearing on screen he would change his mind eight months later but the damage was done Arbuckle, no, oh, this is so sad. He changed his name to William B. Good. 
and worked behind the scenes directing films for friends who remained loyal to him and barely earning a living in the only business he knew. A little more than 10 years later, on June 29, 1933, he had a heart attack and died in his hotel room. He was 46. And so that is the really tragic story. It's a lot sadder than I remember when I was writing it. Um, that's the story of Roscoe Fatty Arbuckle. Just like, what a rough start. What a highest of high. And what a crazy fucking low. And just like, to have it all taken away by wrong place, wrong time, with the wrong people. I mean, another reason you are who you surround yourself with, right? So you always got to be surrounding yourself with people who aren't pieces of shit, who might accuse you of unforgivable acts and then cause the downfall downfall of your career. Um, yeah. Wow. All right. Well, that left me more bummed out than I planned on being today. Um, <laughs> so I'll wrap this up. Um, if anyone can think of who the number one celebrity, male celebrity in the world is, who has been, I guess it would be maybe if like Johnny Depp had lost against Amber Heard, maybe this would be the thing. Um, not that I'm pro Johnny. Um, yeah, I don't know who, who's the biggest star in the world who would actually lose his career has this happened? Am I just blanking on someone who got canceled? Okay. Uh, well, DM me, call me, text me. Um, that is this week's episode. Okay. Bye. Mm-hmm.